This is an amazing text of scripture. It's remarkable in that we have recorded for us this, this stunning conversation, this stunning prayer between God the Son and God the Father. It is as if we have been allowed to eavesdrop on the triune dialogue. Sometimes we wonder why it is that we pray. Well, what this text suggests to me is that prayer is the language of the triune God. And gloriously, we have been allowed into the conversation, if you can imagine that. In this case, we are listeners, listeners to this glorious prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ on the night in which he was betrayed, the evening before his crucifixion. And in it, you have three basic movements, and we intend to cover these. First one, Bill McCutcheon handled on Ash Wednesday evening, verses 1 to 5, Christ praying for himself. Then here in verses 6 to 19 this morning, you find Jesus expanding the circle and focusing his prayer on his disciples, those that had walked with him in the earthly sojourn. Now, it applies to us, and that's how we'll approach it this morning. But in particular, he is focused on his disciples, those that have been with him. And then finally, in verses 20 to 26, which Bill McCutcheon will preach from next week, Jesus expands his focus still further to those who would believe through the witness of these disciples that would, would, would uh, survive him. And so we intend to focus in those three movements, uh, both Ash Wednesday this morning and next week. This morning's text has particular relevance for us coming off the heels of a, a marvelous missions conference. I hope many of you, I hope most of you had the opportunity to hear Dr. Clive Calver uh, throughout the weekend. He gave us an incredibly vivid and concrete picture of the world's needs, as well as the great opportunity that is before us as the people of God. And certainly we all who have been in this church for any length of time at all have heard Sandy Wilson, our own pastor, repeatedly and urgently and passionately and winsomely call us to the work of mission, to world missions, to evangelism here in our own home city of Memphis and in our own neighborhoods. And as I've thought about that and as I've myself reflected on the missions conference from last week, I find myself wondering why it is that we have difficulty letting ourselves loose in the work of evangelism and missions with what Oswald Chambers would probably call a reckless abandon. Why is it that we find ourselves held back, find ourselves hamstrung, find ourselves tongue-tied when it comes to sharing the gospel? The Apostle Peter, in Acts chapter 4.20, is being grilled by the Sanhedrin, and they are commanding him and threatening him and looking to coerce him not to preach about Christ. And Peter says, how can I not help speaking? How can I but speak of what I've seen and what I've heard? Yet when I look at our own broader evangelical church, what I tend to see is, for many of us, we have a hard time speaking. We cannot but not speak. The exact opposite of Peter. And instead, a certain timidity has, I fear, befallen the church. 
You know, it's easy for one like me to come and to stand in this pulpit. You're all such a gracious congregation, and those of us who have had the great privilege and honor of preaching here know what it is to be immensely encouraged by you all and to be received so warmly. And we're quite good at preaching to the choir, as it were, to those who are on the same page. But somehow with the believing world, or unbelieving world, we find ourselves a bit timid. And I would say if you consider where we are in history, that's not actually all that surprising. For you see, the relationship of the church to the world in our generation has changed dramatically. For 1,700 years, Christianity has been, as it were, the official religion of the West. If you go back to Constantine in the early 300s, Christianity was made the official religion of Rome and of the empire. And if you go several hundred years following Constantine, you'll find that the time was known as the domain of the Holy Roman Empire. And at the peak of his power, the pope regarded all earthly kings as vassals. Even at the time of the Reformation, what you'll find is that the government and the state were very, very closely aligned, that Luther was very, very dependent on Philip of Hesse and others, uh, other statesmen, other monarchs, to help further the cause of the Reformation. Even in our own country, though we officially, for a couple hundred years, have had a certain understanding of a separation of church and state, still Christianity has been a very privileged religion among them all. And especially here in the South, known as the Bible Belt, here in the Mid-South, Christianity has been preeminent. But brothers and sisters, in our generation, Christianity has lost its place alongside of the state as a privileged religion, as the chaplain to the state, as it were. And so we find ourselves as the church grasping and grappling for what is our relationship to the state. Who are we? Where are we to be? How are we to relate to the state? How are we to relate more broadly to the world? And this text before us, John 17, verses 6 to 19, speak to that very issue. Who we are, where we're to be, what we're to do. And so, brothers and sisters, I'd like in the time remaining to consider how it is that we are related to the world. First of all, in verses 6 to 10, what I believe Jesus is teaching, among other things, is that we have been lifted out of the world, as it were, that we have been chosen out of the world. Look at verse 6. I have revealed you, says Jesus, to those whom you gave me out of the world. Dear friends, there are only two categories of people Two categories that ultimately matter when it comes to the issues of life, death, and eternity. You are either those who belong to Jesus Christ or you are those who belong to the world. There is no other category that is as important as determining in which category you fall. The Bible has other ways to characterize these two categories. Jesus called one the sheep. He called the others the goats. He called some the wheat. He called the others tares. He called some children of God. He called some children of the devil. Some are citizens of heaven. Some are prisoners of hell. 
Dear friends, that's the only set of categories that matter. Do you belong to him or are you of the world? We get so hung up on all the other categories. We get hung up on Democrat or Republican, rich or poor, white collar, blue collar, African American, European American, male, female, beautiful, ugly, the bottom line, none of them matter in life, death, and eternity, but one of Christ, of the world. And what Jesus is saying here is that we are of him. We have been called out of the world. You see, we once were of the world. We once were, and Ephesians chapter 2 puts it, those who were children of wrath, those who were bound to sin, those who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's where we were of the world. But now we have been set loose. We have been made alive in Christ by his great mercy. Our hearts have been recreated. You are not merely one who has a new set of beliefs. You have an entirely new soul that has been regenerated, recreated, such that you're able to have new beliefs, such that you're able to turn from sin and to turn towards God and to pursue righteousness, such that you're able to love righteousness. God has changed your heart. And most significantly, he has made you his children. And friends, it is remarkably astounding language when Paul basically says in 1 Corinthians 15, you used to be of Adam, the first Adam. You no longer are. You are of the second Adam. We are of a new race, a new species. We are that separate from the world. And thus, you have as much in common with the world as a wheat with a tear. At the very core of who you are, you are fundamentally different. And so we are called in the scriptures a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's what's happened to you. Remarkably, what Jesus prays here is that God had set us apart from eternity. Look here again in uh, these verses. Verse 6, he says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. And the word yours is underscored. Yours they were, he says. You know, friends, we tend to think that we're God's people because Jesus saved us, because we received Christ. There is a certain truth to that. But you know, there's a greater truth even, that we were saved because we were God's people. That's precisely what Jesus is saying. Because they were yours, you gave them to me, and they're mine now. You see, we existed in the mind of Almighty God before we ever were. We were loved in the Almighty heart of God before the creation ever was. And yet in the fullness of time, God the Father gave us as a gift to God the Son. Here again, we tend to think a little differently and with good reason. We're told that, that the Lord Jesus Christ was a gift to us, and indeed he was. 
But friends, there's another side of the gospel here which says that we are a gift to the Lord Jesus Christ from God the Father. In fact, this is a huge emphasis in this prayer. Look at verse 1. You granted him authority, speaking of himself, you granted me, that is, authority, that he might give eternal life to whom? To all those you have given him. Verse 6, we see it twice. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me. They were yours, and you gave them to me. Verse 9, I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. And then in verse 24, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Do you hear the refrain? It's over and over. Jesus regards us as a gift from God the Father, which leads me to this great truth, dear friends. The gospel at the most fundamental level is not about business between us and God. It's about business between Christ and his Father. At the most fundamental level, it's a, it's a transaction between God the Father and God the Son. And we are the passive gift going from one to the other. Salvation is ours because God gave us to Christ. Salvation is ours because Christ obeyed his Father. Salvation is ours because Christ absorbed his Father's wrath. Salvation is ours because Christ paid off our debt to the Father. Salvation is ours because Christ wanted to glorify his Father. And salvation is ours because God wanted to glorify his Son. Friends, the gospel is between God the Father and God the Son at its most fundamental level. And we are the beneficiaries. We are those who are the huge beneficiaries of God the Father's love for God the Son and God the Son's love for God the Father. And that makes us God's people. And that's what Jesus is saying here. We are not of this world. We are not of this world. Yet, Jesus doesn't stop there. In verses 11 to 15, having underscored who we are. And actually, if I might just point this out for a moment. Isn't this marvelous? This is the Lord Jesus Christ reminding God the Father of who we are. So often we come in prayer saying, Lord, remember me. You are our God. We are your people. What are we doing? We're reminding him of the covenant promise. Gloriously, the Lord Jesus Christ reminds the Father continuously of who we are and our relationship to Him and our relationship, you know, our relationship to the Father and our relationship to His Son. Well, not only have we been, as it were, called out of the world, you've got to see yourself first and foremost as those who don't belong here, friends. If you want to understand your relationship to this world, it is first and foremost to see yourself as citizens of heaven, pilgrims passing through. This is not home for you. We are out of this world. And yet, we read in verses 11 to 15 that Jesus has left us in the world. So though he has lifted us out of the world, he now tells us in his prayer to the Father, he allows us to overhear that we are still in the world. Now the truth is, 
we Christians are not terribly excited about remaining in the world. And there's good reason for that. We love being together. If you really belong to Christ, you're going to love his people. As messy as they are and as messed up as they are, as messed up as we are, let's use first person plural here, you're going to love God's people and you're going to love being with God's people. You're going to love being in worship with them, however faint a representation it is of heaven. You're going to scent that this is where you belong. It's much like those who come from foreign nations. And they come, and what do they look for? They look for communities of their own. Those who come from Colombia are going to look for a Colombian enclave. Those who come from Norway are going to look for a Norwegian enclave. Why? Because they understand the language. They understand the culture. They understand the homeland. There's a kindredness. Well, why is it we love to be with the people of God? They understand our language. They understand our sense of homeland. They understand our sense of not belonging here and our dissonance with the world and our struggles. They know. So there's no surprise why we want to be withdrawn from the world. There's no surprise, radically, why Paul just wants to leave this earth entirely and go to heaven. Philippians chapter 1, Paul saying, you know, I don't know what I really want. The truth is I am a ton better off if I go to heaven. But I sense it might be better for you if I stay. Paul says, man, to live is Christ, but to die, that, that's gain. Paul just wants to exit altogether. But the fact of the matter is God has called us to remain in the world our business is to be engaged in this world, to be salt and to be light, to be those who have enmeshed themselves in every nook and cranny of his creation. Now, friends, Jesus is profoundly realistic about what kind of world he's left us in. In his prayer, he tells the Father they will be hated. He tells the Father that we belong in this world as much, or as I should say, as little as he does. But he knows that he has left us in, in a very rough world. Think about it. He's praying this prayer on the night when the world is gathering around to conspire against him. And, to, and the fist, the iron fist of Rome is bearing down on the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows the world. He knows it far better than you and I do. Not only that, the Lord Jesus sees what's underneath the world, the spiritual world which drives the hostility of the world we know. John wrote also Revelation 12. If you look at Revelation 12, you'll get an, a marvelous picture, a scary picture of the spiritual world that underlies this physical world. And you find there a dragon. That's the imagery, a dragon. And you find a dragon who is raging with a certain unquenchable fury to pursue the church and to destroy it. And the picture there is of God and creation itself doing what it can and doing what it will 
to deliver the church and to preserve it against the wrath of the dragon who is making war against the people of God. Dear friends, that's what Jesus sees. And as a result, you find in Jesus here a profound urgency. Look at verse 11. He just interjects, Holy Father, protect them in your name. Protect them or keep them by the power of your name, the name which you gave to me. And then he repeats his prayer in verse 15. Protect them from the evil one. Now, does this mean that Jesus envisioned for us a life without suffering? No, he did not. He himself is the supreme example of that. He himself was to die within hours of this prayer. And he told us to take up our crosses and to follow him, denying ourselves. But dear friends, what he is praying for us here is not that we be removed from suffering, but that we be preserved through suffering and that we be kept until the end, that our faith would be sustained and that evil would not have its way with us, but that evil, much despite itself, would produce good in us. Do you remember when Joseph uh, was engaging his brothers for 13 years, he had suffered slavery and prison, exiled from the promised land, exiled from his family. And then some 20-plus years after that, his brothers are seeking his forgiveness. And Joseph, in remarkable words in Genesis 50, verse 20, tells us, you intended it for evil. God intended it for good. God takes those things that would be perpetrated against us as if they were to bring us down with evil. And God says, they'll be for your good. Nothing can come your way except what is good for you. All things work together for good. All things, whether sorrow, whether bereavement, whether illness and affliction, unemployment, all work for our good, even injustice because God is turning it that way. And none of it will bring down our faith. It's marvelous to me to think that the church has existed for 2,000 years, having never seen, heard, tasted, smelled, touched their God. And they have withstood one affliction after another. Many of us were in the fellowship hall last Saturday, and we saw the, the videotape of these Sudanese Christians in South Sudan constantly facing the threat of genocide, constantly facing the threat of enslavement. And they hang in there with faith in a God they've never seen. Why is that? Because Jesus prayed for them. Because Jesus prayed for them that their faith would not fail. A professor of mine had been teaching a class some time before I took class with him. And he had been preaching on the safety of the world to the Christian. And a young woman wrote to him anonymously, who was in the class, and basically said, Sir, I don't understand how you can speak of this world being safe for the Christian. And she told her story as one who had been sexually abused and molested. This anonymous woman, having written to this professor, he wrote back. 
And he made his response public because he knew more than she would be struggling with this very issue. Just how much has God kept us? And in one paragraph from this letter, he writes this. God allows Satan to pour all hell out upon our heads. We waver. We are bewildered. We stagger in disbelief and shock. We may come within an inch of cursing God forever. But, here's the glorious but, but God will not allow his grace to be defeated by evil. When the battle is finally over and the smoke clears, the believer is the one still standing, exhausted, wounded, triumphant. You see, dear friends, Satan is battling an army that cannot die because the Lord Jesus Christ is sustaining them and interceding for them. And though we may wobble, and though we may stagger, and though we may even fall to the ground, we will get up because we are kept by the Lord Jesus Christ and God his Father. As this professor said later, as I've said, an army that cannot die. That is what you and I are. Which leads me to the final point. If we are a people who have been separated in the most remarkable way from this world, and yet we are a people who have been left in this world, in the last few verses of our text, verses 16 to 19, what we read there is we have not only been left in the world, we have been sent into the world. Jesus prays, as you, Father, have sent me, so also have I sent them into the world. Dear friends, for 17 years we have been doing evangelism in a way that I call Constantinian. That's this, that when Constantine made the church the official religion of Rome, instead of going out to the world to bring the gospel to them on their turf, we have been calling to the world, come to us on our turf. And so evangelism in the church for hundreds of years has been about the business of trying to get people into the church to hear the gospel. And I would suggest to you that that is a failed strategy now. In fact, today, many churches are bending over backwards, standing on their heads, doing somersaults. Why? To try and get people to come into the church rather than taking the gospel out to them. And you know, Constantinian evangelism is actually safer for us. Because think about it. We're asking unbelievers to come in and to be surrounded by us. It's one thing for one of us to be in a room with a thousand unbelievers who may be hostile to the faith. It's another thing for an unbeliever to come into a room of a thousand believers. Who's going to be intimidated? Who is it that's on foreign soil trying to figure out when to stand, when to sit, when to speak, when to bow his head, when to open his eyes? The unbeliever is just trying to figure out which way is up. So it's safer for us, isn't it? 
After all, they're the ones making all the adjustments. They're the ones who are outnumbered. They're the ones who are disoriented. Well, we don't live in a Constantinian world anymore. Christianity has lost its privileged place. And dear friends, that means we get the same injunction as the disciples had in the pagan Roman world. Take your gospel out to their world. Jesus says, I've sent you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now think about that. That's not a very strong position. I'm not exactly wanting to be a sheep in the midst of wolves. Yet that's how he has sent us out. And he says, I have sanctified myself to pave the way for you. Dear friends, we have been called to take the gospel out. Let's stop constantly trying to just woo them in to hear the gospel here. Let's go out to where they are and let them hear the good news that Jesus reigns. By way of conclusion, I want you to think about these disciples for whom Jesus prayed. As I've told you, verses 6 to 19 are pretty specifically focused on Jesus' 12, though they certainly have application to us. But I want you to think about those 12 for a minute. Look what Jesus says of them, first of all, going back to verses 6 and 8. He says of them, they have obeyed your word. They accepted your words. Verse 8, they know with certainty that I came from you. And I want to say, oh yeah? You see, it was just earlier in the evening, Philip was saying, Jesus, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus says to Philip, Philip, have I been so long with you and still you don't know me? Oh, they certainly know that you came, Jesus, from the Father. Well, then why is Peter in a very short period of time going to deny you three times? Why are all of the disciples going to scatter and run? Why are none of the disciples going to look for your resurrection? You know, I take great comfort from this because here's Jesus recognizing even a kernel of faith amidst a whole sea of doubt in these disciples. He knew Peter would deny him. He already foretold it. And he even prayed for Peter, anticipating his denial, as we read earlier this morning. He knew the disciples would scatter. He foretold it. And yet he prays for these who have a seed of faith in a sea of doubt. And he recognizes that. Isn't that marvelous? Dear friends, we are not a very strong people. As I started out this morning, I said, I fear that a spirit of timidity and fear has tripped us up. And as we try and find our way in a world that has dramatically changed in this generation, I want to suggest to you, God knows you're weak. Jesus knew your weakness, and he's prayed for you. I close with a story, <clears throat> one of my favorite conversion stories. In the 1850s, a Sunday school, Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball had been teaching a, a Sunday school class for teenage boys. <clears throat> and he was quite convinced that one of those boys in his class did not know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. 
And so Kimball decided that he needed to speak with this young man about his faith. And so Kimball went down to Holton Shoe Store in Boston, because that's where the lad worked. And he decided he wanted to share Christ with him. But as he was approaching the shoe store, he found himself in an internal struggle. Well, shall I go in? If I go in, the others will hear what I'm talking about, and they might ridicule him, and they might scoff at him. And Do I really want to put him through all that and all of the anxiety that you and I feel when we approach sharing Christ with somebody? Well, Kimball, as he was wrangling about, realized he had come to the shoe store. And he says in his recollections of this, he says, I darted in there and just get it over with. I'm just going to share Christ and get it over with. And Kimball says, <clears throat> Upon reflection, I made a very weak plea for Christ. I love those words. A very weak plea for Christ. But to Kimball's great pleasure and delight, the young man was ready to receive Christ. And marvelously, this young man was Dwight L. Moody, who would grow up to be one of the greatest evangelists we've known. Thousands upon thousands would be received into the community of faith by Moody's preaching on this continent and over in Europe. And all because a Sunday school teacher darted in to get it over with and to make a very weak plea for Christ. Dear friends, I'm not asking you if you can preach like Billy Graham or D.L. Moody. I just want to ask you, can you make a very weak plea for Christ? God has a marvelous way of using weak people, using weak people to make very weak pleas that produce very great fruit. Let us go and let us proclaim this great Savior. Amen. Won't you pray with me? Dear Father, we are a weak people. We are quick to deny. We are quick to run. But we have a seed of faith. We ask you to take that seed and to multiply it, to use us if all we can do is make a weak plea to advance the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as long as we have been sent into this world. We pray in his strong name. Amen.